to the to the band there. You guys did amazing. You got such amazing talent that you're using for the Lord, allowing Him to to use you to flow through you, create beautiful music. You know, we sing new songs to the Lord. It's a little lanyard, if you if you don't mind. A lot of the non-charismatic Pentecostals, you know, the Baptists, they look down on our form of worship. But you see all over the Bible, spontaneous worship, worship that incorporates the gifts of the Holy Spirit, joyful worship, boisterous worship, loud worship. This is biblical worship, folks. We are doing what the Bible says. Hymns and liturgy, that's all fine and dandy. But no one can say that we aren't doing it the Bible way. Amen? And that, that's also demonstrated in the uh, Pentecostal handbook, also known as the Book of Acts. They worship the way we worship, right? Mother Mary, she spoke in tongues, right? Uh, the apostles, right? They got their shingy-dingy on, right? Anyway, we're going to study Acts chapter 25 today. Let's welcome up our pastor and visionary leader, Joe Irostek. Let's give it up for Pastor Jared last week. Amen. What a great job, brother. Thank you. Yes, amazing job. Let's go to Acts chapter 25. And I want to challenge you guys today with guess, or let's not say guess that sermon, but make that sermon. So underneath the live feed for today, right now on Facebook, I want you guys, by the end of this message, to tell me what sermon you would have preached from Acts chapter five, uh, 25. Because I'll tell you what, this was my most difficult passage ever in my entire life to come up with a sermon. And as you read through it, you will understand why. The literal steam of revival has run out by Acts chapter 25. There's no revival. There's no riot. There's no miracles. There's no controversies of baptism. There's no theological debate. It is literally one chapter of entire historical narrative. I did my best, by God's grace, to honor the Word, and that's why I love exegetical preaching verse by verse, because if you preach topically, you'll be left to preach only what you feel comfortable with. So today, you will see me in my most uncomfortable position ever. Acts chapter 25 has brought me to that place. Now, I haven't preached yet verse by verse through Leviticus, but I'm sure there would be more there, because at least it's the teaching of the law. This is, to me, the hardest chapter I've ever had to preach out of. It doesn't mean that it's uninspired. It doesn't mean that it's not important. It is just something that is hard for me to apply to your lives. So I have done my best to apply it to your life. And this is what I got out of today's chapter 25. Now, first of all, the Word of God is not first for application. It's first for revelation, for us to understand the, the, the historical context of our in the, in the book of Acts, your, our, our church, and how it started, the early church. So it isn't first and foremost to be like, what do you get out of it? What did you feel? God is speaking to you. It's not first for application. It's for revelation. This is the historical narrative of the church. But as well as revelation, it's not either or. Both and there should be application. There should be something we go away from going, Yes, I am so happy I read Acts 25 today, verse by verse. I am so happy we read it. What I got out of that passage was inspirational, transformational, revelational, amen, applicable to my life. So let's pray that God will allow me to do this well. And then I'm going to put each and every one of you, including our professor, on the hot seat 
to see what sermon you would have pulled out of this bad boy. So let's go to Acts chapter 25 in the Pentecostal handbook. We're going to learn today about Paul remaining faithful during the time of captivity and using Roman law to his own advantage. Let's see what the Lord can do for us here. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, then they can press charges against him there. Just to review from Acts chapter 24, Felix has now come out of office. Festus has taken his place. Festus and Felix were the governors of Rome, established by the Roman government to be over the area of Palestine. That's where they began to refer to that area, which would be the Jerusalem, Judea area. Festus is now in charge, and one of the first things that the Jewish people want him to do is to bring Paul from Caesarea, where he was kept safe from the plot of the Jews. That's where he was kept safe. They want him now to bring him back, bring him back to Jerusalem so that they can kill him in an ambush. Now, once again, I'm not so much of an allegorical preacher. I'm sure I could find sun in there. They wanted to kill him, but God had a plan to keep him. There may be people along the way that want to ambush you. Is there anybody here that's gotten in an ambush? Well, I want to tell you, God's got somebody for you to keep you safe. And so don't let the devil take you out. This is not an ambush. It's a setup. It's not a setup for a curse. It's a setup for a blessing what the devil was doing to mess. God is going to bless. Come on. They tried to take you out, but God going to bring you in. Now, I know I could allegorically preach it like that, but that wouldn't be really true to the Word of God. <laughs> and I love Pentecostal preaching and whooping and howling, by the way, because I do it because I like it, not just to tease it, okay? But I can't really apply that to our lives because how are they trying to ambush you? Now, we, we, we could, and I, I don't want to be too hard on this. There, there can be times in life where people want to try to hurt you and harm you, and set you up. There is an application there, right? So let's take it that way. But we don't have to uh, take the historical narrative here and always apply it to something that it wasn't meant for. So this was not hypothetical ambush. This was literal ambush. So to be true to the Word of God, to apply it exegetically and hermeneutically correct, and exegetically just means according to the verbiage of the text, and hermeneutically means to the context of the text, it, this this would comfort you and be applied to you if people literally, first and foremost, literally were trying to harm you and they were setting you up. And so where would I apply this message? I would apply it to uh, the people in the persecuted church today. And I would say, though the devil is plotting against you, God is in the midst, and he's able to save you. I would not uh, apply this to the ambush of your finals or the ambush of you not being able to make your car payment or the ambush of uh, you being in habitual sin and now reaping the consequences of that, and you're calling it the devil, but it's really God's judgment. Hey, because a lot of time that whooping and hollering gets, gets confused with that. You know, it's like the devil's ambushing you, and he's doing 
doing this, and then and then you're you're in sin, and it's an ambush, and it's like, hold on, let's put up the let's put up the brakes here. Hold up a minute, T.D. Jakes, because he'll do that sometimes. I appreciate him as a preacher, but sometimes T.D. Jakes will throw into the trials and tests of life your personal sin. And it's like, no, these are in two different categories. One is something happening to me that I have no choice over. I don't have a choice to whether or not uh, my, my sister, like how Lawrence has a sister that's, that's getting the, the bad news from the doctor, whether it be lupus or cancer. We don't have a choice over that prognosis. That's a true trial and test. And we can see it satanically influenced because Satan brought sin, sickness, and death through the curse. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Satan is behind it. Now, we can always rebuke him when we pray for sickness and say, I rebuke you, Satan, you spirit of infirmity. That's fine. But that's not necessarily an attack of Satan. A flat tire is not necessarily an attack of Satan. It's a result of the curse. It's a result of a broken DNA strand in the body that came from Satan's uh, deception. Okay, But having said all of that, there are times when you go into tests and you need to know that God's with you. That's, that's right here. But if, if we say, like, I'm in a test because... I'm, I'm sleeping with a woman that I'm not married to, and now we have a child, and she wants, uh, you know, child support from me or something. That's not a quote-unquote test. That's a consequence of your behavior. Does everybody get the difference? Okay. And so apply this to your life in the sense of when I face persecutions, if we want to be honest to the text, when I face persecution like Paul, God is in the midst. Amen. So Felix left him there in safety. Festus is going to do the same thing and keep Paul in safety, thwarting the plot of the Jews because of God's sovereign will. God does not want him to die on a road to Jerusalem. God wants him to go to Rome and continue to write the New Testament. So they are told, bring your problems to Caesarea. Verse 6, after spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. And remember the coming down language? Do we all remember why it says coming down when they're really uh, going up uh, north in that sense? So here's Jerusalem and Caesarea is up. So they should be going up to Caesarea, up, right? That's how we would say, I'm going up to New York. I'm going down to New Orleans. But they're saying we're going down to Caesarea. Why are they saying from the Judea-Jerusalem area, we're going down to Caesarea? Why is that language there by Luke? Geography in what way? From a mountaintop going down. Exactly. That's how they looked at it back then. And so that can be confusing if you're just thinking how we think about geography being up, being directional north. They, they say up and down meaning going up a mountain and going down a mountain for Jerusalem. And guess what else is going to be nice and fun and confusing? It's when we get to Herod Agrippa, discovering who he is. Because there's, there's a bunch of Herods, and then there's two Agrippas. So that was fun for me to look up, uh, wink, wink. But uh, no, I do love history, and it's good to know all these things, but uh, th these are where things get confusing in history. It's like, how many Agrippas are there? How many Herods are there? Why are they going up when they're really going down? Or why are they going down when they're really going up? Okay, 
So, once again, verse 6, after spending ten, eight to 10 days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. And, and notice the summary there. Uh, Luke may not know the exact date. It might not have been important for him at that point because every little detail may not be as important as other details. So he just says eight or 10 days, somewhere around there. So that shows us he's trying to be honest with what he knows in the moment, and the Holy Spirit is leading him. The Holy Spirit doesn't have to stop him when he's about ready to write eight or 10 days. The Holy Spirit doesn't have to stop him and go, oh. It was 9.25 days that he was exactly there for. No, because remember, the, the, maybe we didn't talk enough about this, but let me say this now. When we believe in the verbal inspiration, uh, find, find the actual terminology of how we believe in it. That there, there is a term that we believe, verbal plenary inspiration view of Scripture. We don't believe that God supersedes their mind and intellect to then uh, make them do it like one of those uh, lie detectors where it just goes up and down like that, like a graph. We actually believe that the Holy Spirit inspires them through the normal means of language. So the normal way that they would have been talking in all different times of Scripture being written, they are using that language, that verbiage, as it were, but God is inspiring it to get across his point. So if God was using us to write Scripture today, which would be heretical, by the way, uh, to believe it actually, but just as a, an example, if God was using us to do that, he would be using our terminology. We would say going up to Caesarea from Jerusalem because up to us in this verbiage means directionally north, right? And the same thing here is with uh, eight or 10 days. We probably would care more about that because we are very exact in our calendars and our times and we would say it was nine days. But once again, the verbiage of this culture doesn't take away from the inspiration because we never said it had to be something outside of their culture, as if uh, Moses is going to be writing down E equals MC squared. We won't know what that means for 6,000 years, but we're just going to write it down now. You know, it was meant to be read and understood by their culture and then for us to come back and appropriate it to our culture. And it is the verbal, plenary, plenary view of inspiration. So that's why it says eight to ten days. Festus went to Caesarea. The next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. This is the Roman court. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious, char serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Now track with Paul in his understanding. He has done nothing wrong because he is not a blasphemer by the definition of the Bible. That's what they're probably wanting to put on him, that he's blaspheming. But he's not because he believes that Jesus is the Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. He is not violating any of the Jewish laws. And this does not mean that he now preached the law to Gentile converts. He's doing this because the Jewish temple is still intact and as a way of cult, cross, well, not cross-culture, for him it's his own culture, but a way of culturally communicating the gospel to Jews, he remains an obedient Jew. The question is, what should Jews do after the destruction of the temple? My thing is, they're free not to follow the Mosaic law anymore as Gentiles. Now it's a choice for them as well. But until this point, it was still right for them to do so, to not cause confusion to the Jews, and to follow the mandate of Jesus to preach the gospel to the Jews first. 
So he says, I've done nothing wrong, and he hasn't. It's just like Jesus. Jesus didn't do anything wrong when he called himself the temple. That's not disgracing the temple. This is true. Jesus is the temple. And that's why in the book of Revelation, when we see the new uh, heavens and earth, there's no temple there. Why? Because uh, God is the temple, okay? And so there's no sun there, and God is the sun, etc. So what we see here is their charges don't stick. There's nothing they can put on him. And he doesn't break Roman law. He doesn't break Roman law. Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor. Here's where we find the Jews trying to be in cahoots with the government. So now he wants to do the Jews a favor, and I believe this has to do with what uh, Jared was talking about last week because there was so many uprisings in this area that they, they don't want more riots either because then it makes them look bad to their senior officials in the Roman government. So he's trying to calm them down, doing wanting to do them a favor. He said to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? And so at this point, The favor is probably going to lead to Paul's death. Paul would have been killed if he would have given a positive affirmation. If Paul wouldn't use his Roman citizenship, as we see in just a moment, to appeal to Caesar, he could have died on that road. But you see, this gives us what we call supposed contradictions. It gives us another example of the supposed contradiction. What's a supposed contradiction? Where the Bible says one thing, and in another circumstance, somebody says or does another thing. And so then we think that's a contradiction. So in one place, Jesus says in Matthew, call no man fool. Uh, I believe that's Matthew chapter 5, and then somewhere around Matthew, what, 16, 17? No, 22. Yeah, 23, where he calls the, the Jews fools over and over again. That's a supposed contradiction. But it's really not when you understand the context. Jesus is saying in Matthew, call no man a fool or rock without cause in the sense of making a human judgment, putting people down. In that sense, you'll be judged as a murderer if you hate people like that. But when he's calling them fools in Matthew, what he's doing uh, at the end of Matthew is he's showing them their sin and their behavior. He's describing it. Well, here we see what could be another supposed contradiction. Jesus taught in the Beatitudes, if someone takes your coat, give them also your shirt. And if someone compels you to go a mile, go with them two miles. So according to that teaching, shouldn't Paul be willing to go not only to Jerusalem, but wherever they want to go? So he should be willing to do that. But as you see now in this circumstance, it's not the appropriate thing to do. One shows humility, being willing to uh, serve your oppressor, which was the Roman Empire at that time, which could ask you to carry their, their, their goods and their armor down the road as they were traveling from one place to another. The Roman soldier could ask you to do that. And Jesus is saying, hey, be willing to even go further with them if you need to. But here they're trying to kill him and thwart the plan of God, which he knows he has a word to go to Rome, not to die in Jerusalem, because he's already been told by his nephew that they want to set up a ambush for him. So now he says, I resist going there. So is it a contradiction? No, it's the circumstance. And it's the same thing with women in the ministry. Women are given these, these real strict protocols because of the culture at that time. And we don't need to appeal to the temple prostitution. We found that that, that was more uh, hypothetical than actual in the time of the Bible. But we do know they served as prophetesses. We do know that they at times could be like gypsy kind of women. They could be also prostitutes, not necessarily in the temple. And therefore, there must have been something going on that was offending the Jews 
Jewish base or the culture of the Jewish people who were very strict in women in their religious setting. And so to see pagan women talking up, giving words, was probably distracting them. And so in one place in Timothy, he says they must be silent and not even say a peep. In Corinthians, they're allowed to pray as long as their head is covered. So even there, there could be a contradiction. So when people that are from a Baptist background say, well, you know, women should be silent. We'll say, well, do you let your women wear earrings? Do you let them have braided hair? Or do they have to wear a covering on their head? See, even then, they're not consistent with themselves. So it's either take all of it or put all of it, uh, to take all of it or none of it because we put, we take none of it because we put it in the category of cultural um, appropriation, that it was appropriate in that culture to forbid the, the braided of hair, which was probably related to a prostitute, or the jewelry that was related to this kind of gypsy living of either being perverse or uh, involved in some kind of a false religion. Because when we see Paul speak to the people of Rome, he considers Phoebe a deacon, a leader, which would have the full rights and privileges of any other kind of leader. And there's no restriction there. Priscilla and Aquila is meeting with them. There's no restrictions given to her. As a matter of fact, Andrew Nikus and Junior are known as an apostolic couple, no restrictions. So is he contradicting himself? No. He's appropriating the word to the culture. And so it's wrong for us to look back on these situations and say, that there's not cultural context to the Word of God. And so if, Christ, if non-Christians want to force us into these holes of, counter, uh, you know, is it either or, and we want to keep saying both and, they can't do that to us without letting us explain it from our own Scripture because even from the very beginning, even from the very beginning, there's things that God would have done that would, 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 have, would have seemed to be a contradiction, but it's God not contradicting himself, but it's a different circumstance. So, for example, how many know before Abraham's time it was wrong to murder your children? It's wrong to do that. But Jesus asked, uh, you know, because I believe it's Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ asked, talking to Abraham, I believe he's the one that's always showing up, and it actually gives us mention of that in, in, in Genesis 18 that he came with the two angels, and the two angels went along and then judged Sodom and Gomorrah. When he asked him to sacrifice his son, was he violating this law of thou shalt not murder, you know, in the sense of thou shalt not murder the innocent? No, he's not violating his law. What he is doing is he is testing Abraham to see whether or not he will be obedient to give up his son as a sacrifice that he himself will be doing in the coming future. So it's a different set of consequence, uh, it's a different situation, and it's not saying that God approves of child sacrifice, which the pagan nations did. It was in a certain circumstance. And the same thing is I can be here all day. Just make up a message within this one point right here. Thank you, Holy Ghost. You know, but here we go. Rahab and the spies, thou shalt not lie. They come of Jericho, ask her, where are these men? Where are the spies? And she points them in the wrong direction. Well, is that violating the thou shalt not lie? No, because in that situation, the lie is benefiting the 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 purpose that God has. And so now people may want to take it to the next level, which we call situational ethics, and now say there is no real right and wrong. All situations dictate the right and wrong. But we don't agree with that either. We agree that there is a genuine right and wrong, but God determines how it works in the situation. So the situation doesn't determine the ethics. God determines the ethics in the situation. And some people may uh, consider that double talk, and then that's where I've always taught you, once we've given the answer, that's a solid biblical answer. Are, are you guys tracking with me there? Solid biblical answer. 
Now somebody says, I'm not satisfied with that answer. That's when we flip the cannon around and go presuppositional on them and say, now where do you get your ethics from and where do you get the right to disagree with what I've just shared with you? Because I will not just be on the defense explaining my Bible and how it works. Now you must put up or shut up. Do you guys get that? And so never debate a subject only from the position of defense. Always go on the offense. Can you win a game just playing defense? No, you must score points. And so now you say to them, okay, well, you're not happy with my answer. Well, what is your system of ethics? And every world religion is going to have to make their claim. And then our claims will defeat their claims. And then any non-religious belief, like a atheist, uh, uh, atheist or agnostics, et cetera, will have to admit they have no certainty and have no ability to make any claims. And, and right now, Inspiring Philosophy just put up one of those where it says, I believe objectively that the Bible is... It's immoral. And then the next point, but I don't believe in objective morality. So now I just contradicted myself. But somehow the Bible is objectively immoral. Well, you can't, you can't have that. So the moment they now want to say we're wrong for whatever our Bible is saying, now we have to ask them, what is your standard for objective morality? And if they give up that position and say, well, I believe it's subjective, well, then you have, no, you have no more arrows to shoot at us. So that is a great way to understand this passage right here. Are you willing to stand trial before me there on these charges in Jerusalem? Verse 10, Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have, done, I have not done any wrong to the Jews as you yourself very, as you know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not dis, uh, refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had confirmed with his, conferred with his counsel, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. In the brief amount of time that I had to study this, uh, through the commentaries, it's basically like the Supreme Court. Caesar was able to take on certain cases. It required a lot of money and a lot of favor and governmental approval. And so you had to go through a process just like you would to go to our Supreme Court. Then, even after all of that, you would be put into a waiting line, a list of other people to a list, and there's no guarantee you would ever get to go before Caesar. So you would have to take the risk, if you were incarcerated, to stay there until you went to Caesar, that uh, they would be worth the fight, or take a lesser charge, or just to settle on what the... Um, local government would do for you. So you would have to weigh those options just like as you would here today uh, in, in our courts. He took that into consideration and said, it's worth it for me to go through the process, to go before Caesar so that I might be guaranteed safety and that I now might go to Rome. And we know that that was God's plan all along to bring him to Rome in chains, though it was scary and the elders like in Ephesus didn't want him to go that way. And even including Luke, the author here of Ephesus, didn't want him to go that way. We believe that was God's plan for his life. And I was actually thinking about this so that you guys might understand my perspective of the book of Acts and how uh, Paul appears in the book of Acts. It's not that Paul could not make mistakes or didn't make mistakes in his missionary journeys. I just believe Luke is selective in Paul's life, giving the highlights of making him appear in the best light possible. That's why I don't believe any of the, uh, any of the, the ways people try to snuggle in his mistakes, uh, smuggling in with 
him and Barnabas smuggling it in with the way he was in Athens, possibly too much wisdom, you know, um, um, earthly wisdom. I, I think all of that is smuggling things in because I believe even with Luke admitting that he tried to persuade Paul with the rest of the group that what at this point you're supposed to get as the reader is that we were wrong and Paul was right. Once again, that doesn't mean Paul didn't make mistakes. It's just like any good lawyer presenting a case because first and foremost, God is going to use the book of Acts for the church and its benefit. He knows sovereignly that we need this book. But for Luke, in the actual writing of it, he was probably motivated a lot by Paul's imprisonment to write this account of the church so that the Romans would know the story of the Christians as well as a defense of Paul. And in any defense, you're not going to bring up things that make your client look bad. And the only reason why they would tell the stories about him being a persecutor is because that's the miraculous, tra- that, that, that gives the foundation for the miraculous transformation into the apostle. So I think, not that he's overlooking intentionally to make Paul look like he's never made a mistake, it's just he's giving the defense of Paul's ministry. He's showing the kind of life that Paul lived, and we as the reader are supposed to side with Paul and supposed to see his life in that light. That's why, like I said, I don't take any of the smuggling in against his character in those three major areas he's been assaulted in, whether it was uh, his, his argument with Barnabas or his um, working in Athens with using f- philosophy or being willing to go to Rome. Now, I've, I've had, uh, through, through prison, I've had people be so silly. And this is where the prophetic movement of the church needs to grow up a little bit. Now, I've been listening a lot to Dr. Michael Brown talk on this, and Pentecostals don't need to be so gullible. And it's true, we are very gullible, but praise God, we do believe the things of the Bible that other people don't. So there's a positive to that because people, a lot of Christians, you know, the Baptists don't believe God's still raising the dead. So yeah, call, call me gullible. I still believe that happens. Uh, But in the negative sense of gullibility, it's we believe when people say, thus says the Lord too often. When the Bible literally says, test everything. Hold fast to that which is true. Test everything. Hold fast to that which is true. That's why you see the pattern in my life as your guys' shepherd, even when you go out to other ministries, I want to test their word. Because that's what I'm supposed to do. I want to test what a person got from, an, from our church from another person. I want to test it, and then I want to hold to what is true. And my standard is very simple. I hold to what is true. And so if the word is true, the person is a good leader, praise God, accept that word. Because I will be responsible as a shepherd to how I shepherd you and guarded you from those things. And trust me when I say this, because Jared will be a witness. When churches don't do that, and he's known some lone rangers wiling out in these churches that don't really care much about them in that sense, they believe everything. And then they become very spooky and weird and immature and they don't grow and develop their faith because no one ever tested the words they were receiving. They were taking a word from over here, a word from over here, and a word over there, and a word over here, you know, a word there, a word there, a word everywhere, and just put it into their life. And then now it's just they're just everywhere, you know, they just believe everything. Well, anyways, one of these men I was listening to who actually believes an angel with a feminine name, Emma, comes and visits him and gives him revelation, actually believes John the Baptist was in sin because that's why he died early and was uh, beheaded by Herod. He wasn't supposed to get all political and try to rebuke a leader. His calling was to actually be one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Now, there's a, that's not found in the Bible, but there's a book of something that I believe has that kind of scripture in it. Where's that book found? 
Deuterectomy. That is the book of Deuterectomy. No, not the apocrypha literature of Enoch. You took me too serious. I'm sorry, sir. You got to know when I'm playing around. Um, the scripture that says John the Baptist was supposed to be a disciple, but got killed because he was too political, is found in Deuterectomy chapter 1, verse 8. That's there. That's where that's found. Where you talk to feminine angels named Emma, that's found in 2 Deuterectomy chapter 3, verse 4. That's where that's found. You, you don't find those things in the Scripture. But, but just imagine, put yourself in these people's position. You're sitting there in church, and your pastor says that to you. I mean, he's right on a lot of other things. He's prayed for you. You've sensed the power of God. Why doubt him now? You see how that becomes very convincing to the naive? But you should doubt him when he says something silly. Nonsense is nonsense no matter who says it. It doesn't matter if I say it. It's still nonsense. Test everything. Hold to that. It's true. Find where that's at. I believe it's Thessalonians. Yeah, first. Oh, here we go. First Thessalonians 5.16. We'll see if it's there. So test every spirit, as the Bible also says in 1 John, and test everything and hold to that which is true. And so what I'm trying to say, say with this is Paul's appeal to Caesar I think is right in line with the will of God. That's how Luke wants us to see it. Don't read into Luke's writings. As well, as, as I've said before, Joseph is supposed to have been cocky because he told his brothers about the dream. No, he's doing what any young person's supposed to do when they have a dream. I just had a young adult, well, he's a little bit probably older than what Joseph was, but just a young adult last night wrote me what they got in a dream. That's wonderful. Do I think he's cocky because he didn't? No, he's telling me a dream from the Lord. And brothers of Christ and siblings should take that and receive that, even if it means we're bowing down to you. If, if Lawrence had a dream that said, I, I had a dream that you and your wife served me and were a part of my ministry, I would not take that in the wrong way because I know his heart. Why would that be prideful? What if literally that means 20, 30 years from now, he's the leader of the movement. My wife and I have served our term, just like how past presidents now serve present presidents. I now serve him, and he's our leader. Pastor Grogan has retired from the church he pastored, and whenever he's in town, because he still lives in that same area, he goes to his spiritual son's church and calls him his pastor and serves him. Isn't that the kingdom of God? Shouldn't we all be willing to serve each other? Why wouldn't I serve him? Why wouldn't I see that as a good thing? So once again, people read that into their lives. Don't get stuff out of due direct. I mean, just get it from the scripture. What's the passage? 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21. And read it out loud for us, please. Amen. That was wonderful. And that's how we should do it. Just like that. Verse 13, a few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Sounds simple enough. That's King Agrippa. We all know who King Agrippa is, right? No, we don't. We don't know who he is. Who, who, what is this guy? You have to study, right? And you think it's just going to be something simple like, oh, King Agrippa is just this one guy. He lived, and his name was Agrippa. There was nobody else related to him. There's nobody else with the name Agrippa. So it's really easy to know who King Agrippa is. No, it's actually kind of difficult. So let me read it from uh, the Got Questions website, which is a great place to get basic information. Uh, commentaries say the same thing. But once again, 
Commentaries aren't free online, so I can't be linking them in my notes. So I link what is free for you to check out as, after I've vetted it. And I do have a Wikipedia article I've vetted you can read as well about Bernice. We'll get to that in just a moment. So who is King Agrippa in the Bible? There are two King Agrippas in the Bible. Thank you for clarifying because I thought there was, and now I need to know which one it is in the Bible. Both part of the Herod family. Oh, now we go into Herod's family. How many kings, uh, leaders came out of Herod's family? What, at least four or five, if not more? Okay, King Herod Agrippa one, number one, was a great-grandson. Not even just, oh, excuse me, a grandson of Herod the Great. So Herod the Great had a grandson, and his name was Herod Agrippa I. He ruled over Judea and Samaria. Agrippa I is the one that was called King Herod. You think you would have been called King Herod I? But no, he was called, uh, you think you would have been called King Agrippa I? No, but he was actually called King Herod, which had the same identical name as the other guy. But he was really Agrippa I. That's the one who killed James and imprisoned Peter in Acts 12. So that was Herod Agrippa I who did those things. But he was just called King Herod. The son of Agrippa I was King Herod Agrippa II, also known as Julius Marcus Agrippa. He was the brother of Bernice and Drusilla and heard Paul's defense of the gospel in Acts 26, where we are now. Agrippa II had quite a lot of power in the Jewish religious affairs, for he had been given custody over the temple and the authority to appoint the high priest. Now, let's get to find out who Bernice is, the sister here, because she's going to have quite an interesting story about herself. So let's go learn about Bernice. Once again, as I said, I vetted the Wikipedia article, which, by the way, has Studies have been done in comparison with the Encyclopedia Britannica, and they score exactly the same. I have done that on my own personal study, and I said, man, Wikipedia is usually pretty good. It gets a bad rap most of the time in academic circles, but it's doing really well, and it's scored pretty well compared to a standard encyclopedia. Now, Bernice is the sister of Herod Agrippa one. Uh, excuse me, the daughter of Herod Agrippa I and the sister of Herod Agrippa II, the one we're talking about. But now let's see what's unique about her because it says right here, further down, that she was, trying to buy time, she was, according to Josephus, and an incestuous relationship with her brother. Yes. Yes. Jewish Josephus was not the only ancient writer to, su to suggest incestuous relations between Bernice and Agrippa. And that was also uh, confirmed in my commentaries. So we don't know for sure if that was happening, but he might have been rolling dirty with his sister all up in Caesarea. And that's nasty, I know, but that's how it was back then. So he's riding dirty with his sister. And who are these kings, by the way? They are known as puppet kings. You can look that up as a literal definition, a literal term, puppet king. They are kings that the Roman Empire left in place. And that's Roman Empire is not the only one that did this. A lot of these, these world-dominating powers did this. It was a king that they left in place that had a, a relationship to the community, being Jewish in this sense, and was put in place to be a 
puppet for the government to look like the people still had their own way of doing things in power and weren't necessarily being pimped by the big, bad Roman government. In all seriousness, they were still getting pimped by the Roman government. They eventually get sacked, and Jerusalem gets destroyed in 70 AD, and no king mattered to them at that point. So we need to see their role here, which is really just more of a kind of um, social figure in the government, like the king and queen of England are today, really without any power, but they kind of keep it around for their own uh, history and tradition. So a few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that that is not the Roman custom, to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have and have, excuse me, before they face their accuser and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute about uh, with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss of how to investigate such manners, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges, which they asked me to do so they could kill him. But when he made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. And here we come to the conclusion of this awesome chapter. I hope that you have been blessed thus far. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man? The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome, but I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write, for I think it unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. Now get to typing. What would you name this sermon? What would you name this sermon? Everybody must participate. Jared, would you do me a favor and grab me a mint from the back, uh, from my office, please? My throat is adjusting to the, the cool, <coughs> chilly weather now of Illinois, which is awesome weather, by the way. It was great coming back and seeing the trees blooming. I actually uh, blossoming and the flowers and all that. I actually mowed my lawn yesterday. I left, and it was all dirty and nasty and brown and stuff, and I came back, and it was green and flourishing. So I cut the grass yesterday. Yep. So there you are. You're at the live feed. What would you name this sermon for a chapter like this? Yeah, just put it on the live feed because I want to read them out with the remaining time that we had. I, I was thinking I might as well make this interesting. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I just need the one. Thank you. That was very nice of you, too. Popped it right out there for me.
So I'll tell you mine right after I look at yours. <laughs> Let's look at him. I'm going there right now to see what you would have named this sermon because it's a little bit difficult, right? It's not as easy as the other ones. Let's see what comments we have here. Just the title. Okay, looking here at Chris Pittman, he put, The Pulpit of Persecution. Bro, that is awesome. Like, that is way better than mine. The Pulpit of Persecution. Looking at the persecution as an opportunity to preach the gospel. And I want all of our online students to do the same. So, Amy, I see you watching us. If Jose is watching us, as well as Catherine. Jackie put a title to today's chapter, Saying Yes to Jesus. I think that's good. I'm trying to connect it. Would saying yes to Jesus relate to, by him saying yes to Jesus, he put himself in this situation? Okay. Ooh, that's wonderful. So out of verse 8, because I know you guys don't have microphones, uh, she is saying that out of verse 8, making his defense to go to, uh, making his defense rather to say I've done nothing wrong, what he is basically saying is I love Jesus, and if loving Jesus is wrong, I don't want to be right. So I said yes to Jesus. That's wonderful. We have you next, uh, Sister Soldier, a.k.a. Ashley Bolden. She said, behold, oh, behold the king, before the king. I like that too. That's really good because he's before a king, before a king. I really like that. Man, you could tie in those scriptures that I was reading yesterday on the light when it says in Isaiah, arise and shine, Isaiah 60, the light of God has come and risen upon you. Nations will be drawn to your light. Kings will come to you. And in this sense, uh, he's being brought before the kings because of the light of Christ. You guys are doing way better than me. Way better. I'm almost embarrassed uh, to say mine after this. Somebody put Paul's defense as actually the cohort. Would that be Jared? That's yours? Okay, so you redid it. Yeah, I see it right now. Paul's defense. Okay. This man. All right. Paul's defense is good. That's more along the lines of where I was at. Something just simple. I'll tell you mine in just a little bit. Uh, Paul's defense, okay. Uh, we have Lawrence who said, this man. And what does this man really relate to? This man. Are you finding a phrase there? What verse? Verse 24, this man, okay, because Festus is telling to King Agrippa about this man. I like that. So what's important about this is that this man, what's important about that title is that this man is causing such a ruckus, such a upheaval that now he's in the position that he's in. So he's not just any, he's not just any kind of man, he's a revolutionary kind of man. And so he's gone from being obscure to being well-known. I love that. I love that better than mine. Go ahead. No, I'm not on your point. What it would... Ooh, to end it. I like that. Are you this man? 
Well, that's good because it's been said before as another preaching illustration. If you were put on trial for, for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence from those around you to convict you? Right? So would there be enough evidence of people in your life to convict you of a Christian? Say, yeah, man, I've seen them reading their Bible. I've seen them telling me they don't do these things. Yes. Amen. Amen. He was willing to die. That, built, that builds back into your point, Jackie. Thank you. And that, that's, yeah, because that's in that same passage. Um, I believe Jared wrote God's desire for Paul. That was you. Okay, because a lot of you guys have account uh, administration privileges. Oh, and then Jared is I appeal to Caesar. Very good. I like I appeal to Caesar. God's desire for Paul is almost identical to what I would say. Here, here's what I put at the end as a summary, and this is basically what I would name the title. Sometimes great church movements have slow times, but remember to never lose your focus on the gospel. So I would title it something like never lose your focus on the gospel. And that's too wordy. It's not cool. I get it. That's why a lot of my friends have actually preaching teams where they sit down with a lot of sharp people like yourself and come up with these points that are easier to remember because most of us would emphasize different things, but our titles can be easier to remember, and those points can fit into that better. So never lose your focus on the gospel, I think, is a good title, and I could probably help you to remember that by showing you some of my key points. But I think the, um, my personal favorite from Chris, which was the pulpit of persecution, I actually think that would be easier to remember my points by because you would think of Paul preaching in the midst of persecution and he never lost his focus. So I just love it. Now, some of you would be hitting on a little bit different of points. I think um, Paul's defense would be hitting more on, you could still hit what I'm hitting on, him staying focused, but you'd be coming more from the angle of Paul needing to, to say something to his defense in the sense of why he is the way he is, where for me, I'm not looking at him necessarily defending himself, which is true. The context is defending himself. I don't even want to feel bad about that. Uh, but I feel it's just him, him, him more being more offensive than defensive in some way, just personally. But he is technically on defense. So that, that could be a whole other discussion. Okay, Joe B., have you put yours up here? Okay, here we go. Excusable resistance. It is catchy, but I don't know if it makes sense to me. Yeah, excusable. Okay. Yes. Wonderful. So excusable resistance is, is basically saying something almost like godly rebellion. That's another way of saying it. It's godly rebellion. You know, godly jealousy, godly anger, that's a, that's a subject in the Bible. So you could say it's godly resistance. I like, I like it better than excusable because it's just like, why do I, excuse me, you know, like, why do I need to be excused, you know? I'm not, I'm not excused, you know. I'm godly in my resistance. Wonderful. And that kind of goes back to uh, the American Revolution because they understood 
that uh, what's back up, the English used a lot of scriptures to help justify their kingship, and they used a lot of that Old Testament language to justify doing what they did. And so they would use the God save the king. That's, that's from the Old Testament, like David and, and Psalms. And so what they knew at that point when they were rebelling against uh, England, that they had to clarify that they were not rebelling against God, that they were not falling under Romans 14, the soldier who bears arms for God's sake. So they had a phrase, and it would say something. Uh, it, don't tread on me is another one, but it would say, before God and men. Look up American Revolutionary Sayings. American Revolutionary Sayings. There you go. That's what I'm talking about. To resist tyranny. That is exactly what I'm talking about. Resist. Yep, and that was an American Revolution saying. Yeah, yep, it was um, Jefferson. Tyranny is defined as that which is legal for the government but illegal for the citizenry. Yeah, resist tyranny seemed to be like a slogan. Do you have it actually where it came from? Okay. So to resist tyranny is obedience to God. Yes, Thomas Jefferson, resisting tyranny is obeying God. Yep. Yep. So that what uh, Benjamin Franklin is also attributed to saying it. So who, who said it, we don't know, I guess, at this point. Okay, so that's a great way of seeing it, uh, seeing it and saying it. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, let me just close it up as this. Wasn't this fun today? Isn't it something how what seemed to be, this, let this be an encouragement to all of you doing Bible study sermons and so forth, that what seemed to be a great challenge to me to really get hype was actually God's way of me going in a different direction, and it opened up an opportunity for all of us to learn. So never put the pressure on yourself to use carnal motivations for people with the Word of God. Be humble, be accurate, and let the Spirit use you. And this was a great way for the Spirit to use us. I am really blessed by hearing your thoughts, all of us pulling things out of the Scriptures. It was challenging, and it blessed me to see it as Paul's defense, to as Paul's resistance, and that's actually how I was seeing it, but they're both in there. One is Paul's defending, Paul's resisting. Which, which angle are you going to go at? And then the other one, Paul preaching. I like, I like it all, man. I really liked it all. So thank you for that. Here's how I see it, that even in great church movements, they have slow times. So it's, it's not every moment is a suddenly moment of Acts chapter 2 where Pentecost comes and 3,000 are being saved. You have to be okay with the slow times of church growth. You have to be okay with sometimes things lasting 8 to 10 days and not hardly anything changing. And you don't even yourself remember if it was 8, 9, or 10. You, know? it's, it's, you have to be okay with that because that's part of life, but God's using it for his glory. Remember, though, in those times when things seem to be moving slow or people are still out there to ambush you or you're in trouble and you're not being delivered quickly, you're, you're in a trial that has not ended the time frame you thought it would end, never lose your focus on the gospel. And the gospel in, in 
relative terms to yourself is what Christ did for you and what Christ wants to do for others. So you don't forget your testimony and your call to share it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful day. Uh, Lawrence, would you go and shut off uh, the garage band? I'm sorry, guys. Uh, just want to remind him to do that because I do garage band this time. Lord, thank you for today, for your word that came through the scriptures. It was clear, and it taught us to be faithful in times of trials.